Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. I'd like to invite the ushers down to receive this morning's offering as we continue in worship and um, give back to God what he's so graciously given to us. Uh, and I'd like to just highlight that video for a moment. Elliot, our student pastor, was sharing some, some stories of the youth ministry. There's some cool things happening upstairs. And Larry has, has named this year the year of neighboring for Waterstone. Um, and like Elliot said, I would just encourage us to engage with that as our students do. Really cool things are happening uh, in that room upstairs. Um, so we're continuing our series in the Beatitudes, and I'd like to begin today by telling you a little bit about my wife, Steffi. I've mentioned her a few times from the stage. I, I thought today it might be good to give you a picture so you can kind of see her, who this person I, I talk about often is. It's a picture of our family uh, taken last summer. Um, so my wife, Steffi, she, she's an incredible person. Uh, she's um, a infant and early childhood mental health specialist, which is kind of a mouthful. Um, But that means two things. One, she's incredibly intelligent. She's a brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, And the second thing that means is is her job is basically to work with families, infants and and young children, develop bonds in their family. So she steps into some really difficult situations, children with uh, disabilities, different difficult uh, development issues, Uh, different traumas that have happened in families, and she works with families to to try to strengthen their relationships. It's it's an amazing job, really rewarding, but there are often days uh, where it's a really heavy job. And there are often days where she hears young children uh, say some of the hardest things imaginable, and some of their stories that they share with her uh, leave her um, feeling really heavy. And one thing that we've realized pretty early on in our marriage is that a way to, to kind of help her health and then also the help of our, our marriage is that uh, we have to watch a feel-good TV show on those heavy days. Just a TV show that's kind of lighthearted, makes us laugh a little bit, kind of uplifts the spirits. And so there's different shows that we've seen uh, over the years that have helped us with that. We've watched TV shows like Friends, um, classic. We've also watched shows like Downton Abbey, amazing British drama, but always leaves you feeling kind of good. We've also watched things like Parks and Recreation, just a a lighthearted, yeah, okay, some fans, sweet. Uh, And lately, we've been watching the TV show The West Wing on Netflix. Uh, And while some of you may be like, is that really like uplifting? There's something about the show and the writing where it always kind of ends on a high note that leaves you in a place of, oh, I just feel kind of hopeful. And the, a couple of weeks ago, we were watching this show, and, and there was one of those moments where as we were watching this show, the president of the TV show, he says something to someone where he says uh, a line that stuck with me. He says, humans have amazing capacity. Humans have amazing capacity. And the way they, they write the story and the way the music comes in, it just leaves you in that place of, ah, oh, that just feels good. Humans do have amazing capacity. And if you think about it, uh, as I have this last week, that we have done some amazing things as a species. I mean, we have uh, invented uh, the iPhone. We have tamed fire. We have harnessed nuclear power. We've put people on the moon. We've cured diseases. And the pinnacle, I think, of human achievement, the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. We have done some incredible, incredible things as a species. 
The humans have amazing capacity for good. We can accomplish and achieve some incredible things that no other species on our planet can say they've done. And yet, for all of our ingenuity, all of our ambition, all of our achievements, we have never been able to obtain world peace. We've never been able to to accomplish world peace. No matter how many Nobel Peace Prizes we hand out, no matter how many beauty pageant queens wish for it, world peace eludes us. The question is why? Why is it so hard for us to grasp a hold of peace? Because if we're honest, it's, it's not just peace in the Middle East that we hope for, although we do wish that would come true. It's also peace in the middle of our family rooms. We long for peace in our hearts and in our minds. Because when we look at the world, when we look at our lives, something seems off and not quite right, not the way that it was supposed to be. Our lives are filled with chaos and angst and anxiety and fear. And we long for peace. And so why can't we attain it? If it's something we all long for, we all want, we all desire, why does it still elude us? I mean, why can we create things like the iPhone and not be able to achieve world peace? And I think the truth of it is that we can't achieve world peace together because you cannot bring to the world what you do not possess yourself. You see, we are people that, that, how are we supposed to bring world peace when we can't even achieve inner peace? And and I'm not just talking about some new agey, uh, Oprah Winfrey inner peace. I'm talking about the peace of God that transcends all understanding. That's the peace we all long for and yet can never seem to grasp hold of. So why is that? It was to a world of conflict and strife and evil and war that Jesus spoke these words in the Beatitudes from the side of a mountain when he said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. The peacemakers will be blessed and called the children of God. What is Jesus talking about How can we be peacemakers in a world so full of war and conflict and violence? What does it mean to achieve peace, to bring that to the world? And why does he link this idea that peacemakers are children of God? What is the purpose in that statement? That's what we're going to be looking at today. But before we jump in, uh, it's important for us to, to stop and realize the word Jesus is talking about when he says peacemakers. In the Greek, it's a word irene. And in Hebrew, it's a a word called shalom, which you've probably heard before. It's a word used in the Bible over 400 times. And it's a word that is incredibly rich in meaning and broad in implications. And honestly, I feel like it's too rich and too broad for me to even be able to define for you. And so I'm going to actually turn your attention to the screen because the people from the Bible Project, they did a, a short video that was a word study on this word, peace, in the Bible. Shalom, Irene. And I'd like you to take a look at it because I think it'll help capture some of what Jesus is talking about when he uses the word peace. So turn your attention to the screen, please. I love that video. And hopefully it was helpful in kind of unpacking what it is we're talking about when we say the word shalom. It's this idea of wholeness and completeness, making broken things put back together. 
Shalom looks like Selma, Alabama, March 7th, 1965, where African-Americans in our country who had been subject to racist injustice for hundreds of years banded together to march from Selma to Montgomery to protest their lack of voting rights and the way our country had treated them. And on the way, they were met by Alabama state troopers who shot tear gas into their crowd and beat men and women and children with billy clubs. Shalom looks like coming back two days later and making that same march with their heads held high, continuing to confront the systemic racism and injustice of their day. See, one of the things the video said and one of the things that we see from Selma is that bringing shalom, making things whole, bringing peace is not the absence of conflict. Often when we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict or war, but, but actually shalom and peace necessitate conflict at times. And not only that, but when Jesus uses the word peace, he's not just saying that, that we sweep all of the, the injustices and problems under the rug and that we pretend like they're not there, that we just take the abuse. Bringing shalom actually looks like standing up to your abusers. And yet, it's never using the same force that's used against you. Bringing shalom is never oppressive. It's never a violent force. It's a creative force of bringing God's justice and wholeness to the world through the power of love. You see, when Jesus is talking about making peace and bringing shalom to the world, I think a few moments later in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually gives us a picture of what that looks like and some practical uh, steps of what it actually means to bring peace. And he says these words. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. You see, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be the children of God, he's saying here that those who love their enemies will be the children of their Father in heaven. He is linking these two ideas. So bringing shalom, bringing peace into the world looks like loving your enemies. Well, how does loving your enemies bring shalom or bring peace? Well, it's a tale as old as time. It's a tale of a beauty loving a beast. It's a tale of a woman who was entrapped in a tower and, and who was oppressed by her enemy. And rather than staying confined in the safety of that tower, she, she goes out and confronts the beast with the power of her love, confronting him on his selfishness and on his anger and brings shalom to his life. Her love transforms the monster into a man. But it doesn't stop there. Bringing shalom through loving your enemies gets even better because it's not just that he is transformed, but his entire kingdom is transformed. We see Mrs. Potts and Cogsworth and Lumiere, they all return to their human form the way they were meant to be through the power 
of her love. And it may be a silly illustration, but, but there's deep truth in it that when we love our enemies, it brings transformation to their lives. It makes the unlovable lovable. That is what God is calling us to when he calls us to be peacemakers, to bring shalom. And you may be sitting there thinking, ah, I'm not sure that I actually have any enemies though, Paul. I don't, I don't know that there's anybody I would consider an enemy. And that may be true, but, but I'd ask you to, to think a little deeper. We talk about this a lot at Waterstone, but what about the people who talk behind your back? Or what about your boss who's a jerk? Or what about the person who sits on the other side of the political aisle and votes in a way that you look at and think, that is so destructive. They are ruining our country. They need to stop. I wish they didn't even have the right to vote. Are they your enemy? See, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. For some of us, when I say the word enemy, unfortunately for you, uh, you have no trouble coming up with someone. A face immediately pops into your mind. There's a name. Because there's someone in your life or in your story who's abused you and mistreated you and, and, and taken things from you. And you know that they are your enemy. And I wanna be really clear here because I think sometimes when we talk about loving our enemies, we have this idea that it just means laying down and allowing our enemies to do whatever they want. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. There is a high cost to loving our enemies. But it is not that we just take abuse. The marchers in Selma didn't just take the abuse. While they were nonviolent, through the power of love and through standing up to their oppressors, they overcame the abuse that they had received. That's what Jesus calls us to. And we just need to be clear on that because so many times we as a church can talk about the ways that we need to love people who have hurt us. And people can leave our worship service thinking that there's no hope or that their life cannot change or that there's no way that they can stand up to someone who's inflicted injustice or oppression or hurt to them. That's not what it means to love our enemies or to bring shalom. Sometimes it requires conflict and confrontation in the power of love. And I think Jesus gives us several ways that we can love our enemies, several practical things that we can do that we love our enemies in order to bring shalom to their lives, to our lives, and to the world. And the first thing that I think Jesus calls us to do is he, is he calls us to pray for our enemies. He says in the beginning of that passage that, that um, he tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, when I read this, I've often thought, what does he mean by pray for our enemies? Because if I'm honest, when I want to pray for my enemies, I want to pray fire would rain down from heaven upon their heads, right? That's what I want. But I think what Jesus is calling us to is, is to pray for shalom for their lives, for reconciliation. Not that everything would turn out good in their lives, or that, but the, for their well-being, which sometimes means being confronted, which sometimes means discipline, that God would intervene in their life and bring him, reconcile him to himself to stop their evil and their hate. He calls us to pray for enemies. And, and you've heard it said before here by Nick or by Larry that it, it is really hard to hate someone you pray for. And that is true because something happens in us as we pray for those people that we hate that changes within our own lives that we look at them differently, that we see the circumstance differently. But I'd also say to you, well, it is hard to pray for someone, or hard to hate someone you pray for. It is even harder 
to pray for someone you hate. There's a, a childhood friend of mine that um, growing up uh, had horrible things done to her and uh, knew the person who had inflicted them, a lot of anger towards that person. Ran into that person a, a few years ago at a funeral. And I remember thinking in that moment that I wish that it was that person whose funeral we were at. It's a dark thought. But I was convicted this week because I, I, <laughs> that is my enemy. I have hatred towards that person. And that is also the person that Jesus calls me to pray for. And I felt so convicted this week because it is impossibly difficult to pray for people that we hate. And yet, that's what Jesus has called us to, to pray for our enemies. It's a hard task. It's a, it's a, it's a tall order. But not only has Jesus called us to pray for our enemies, he also tells us that we're supposed to, to greet our enemies. Now, it's important to know that when Jesus says that we're to greet our enemies, he says, and if you greet only your own people, I love that, your own people, the people you get along with, the people you look like, the people you think like, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? It's so easy to greet someone that you get along with. What about the person that you hate, that's your enemy? And it's important to know, Jesus is not just saying that, that we just say hello to the person we don't like, that we just greet them in the hallway as we pass them. It's a, it's a higher call than that. It's actually that we engage with our enemies, which is so important. We live in a society where it is so easy to have an us versus them mentality, where it is so easy for us to look at them and think, ah, they are my enemy, but I am in the right. We divide ourselves into Democrats and Republicans, millennials and boomers, sinners and saved. And we isolate ourselves from people who disagree with us that we don't like, who don't look like us, think like us, and act like us. And we can, can silo ourselves where we don't have to interact with them at all. And yet Jesus says that his followers engage with their enemies. Peacemakers are people who bring shalom to their enemies through engaging with them. And, and sometimes peacemakers help other enemies engage with one another. I, I think oftentimes parents have that role with, with small children. Um, my brother and I, growing up, uh, he's my best friend in the world, but, but growing up, we would get in fights all the time, and it often involved punches to the, to the face and bloody noses. And when that would happen, my parents, they had a really um, creative, I'll say, way of bringing shalom to our relationship. They would force my brother and I to hold hands with one another and walk around the block of our neighborhood. <laughs> you talk about cruel and unusual punishment. Oh, that's so rough. And if we got back to the house after one walk around the block and we weren't in relationship with one another again, if shalom didn't reign in our interaction with one another, they'd send us around again. And then if we came back and it wasn't there, they'd send us around again. And we got a lot of miles in on some of those walks. The best part, but also the, I think the cruelest part of it was if we refused to hold hands with one another, they would take one of my dad's t-shirts and put it over both of us, forcing us to be together. <laughs> Now, this is not a picture of us, but it could be. 
And apparently, I found out this week that there's a whole like uh, branding thing around shirts that are called Get Along T-shirts. I really wish my parents had capitalized on it because it would have made our suffering a little bit more bearable if we got some like, I don't know, a little money from it. But, but they would force us to interact with one another. And they would refuse to let us go our separate ways. They, they brought shalom by forcing us to interact. It is hard to be enemies with someone that you interact with. And it was amazing on these walks as we were holding hands. One, you can't punch each other because you're holding hands, even though we would try to, like, do it. But then we would also get to a place where, where we would begin to work through our issues. Now, sometimes, to be honest, we would work through them because we would be like, okay, let's team up against mom and dad and get them back. So, but it's still, we, we got on the same page, right? That's what Jesus has called us to, to engage with our enemies, to bring enemies together so that shalom can exist in the world. So we pray for our enemies, we engage with our enemies, but also there's another piece of this passage that's sometimes overlooked, where I think Jesus calls us to believe the best in our enemies, to believe the best in them. And to be honest, I think this is a key to the whole passage. Because so many times when we interact with people, who are enemies, it is so easy for us to look at them and think, I am in the right, and you are nothing but evil and the worst of sinners. And yet in this passage, Jesus says that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I think what Jesus is saying is that you see yourself as righteous and the other as unrighteous, but really you're both. You are also the worst of sinners. And while it's really easy to judge our enemies, Jesus is calling us to suspend judgment on them. I read a story this week of a a writer who was in New York City and he was uh, on the subway on a way to a a destination and as he was sitting on the subway, a father came in uh, to the subway with two small children. And as soon as these boys got on the, on the subway, they just started wreaking havoc in the subway. They were loud, they were obnoxious, they were knocking into people, they were jumping off of the, the chairs, they were knocking people's books out of their hands. And this man who, this writer who saw this father, he just looked at him who he was so passive and not doing anything. And he, he just said, sir, can you please get control of your children? They are out of control right now. And he recounts that the man kind of looked up from a fog. He said, ah, I, um, I, I'm really sorry. Uh, I, I know they're kind of out of control right now. We, we just came from the hospital where their mother passed away. And I don't really know what to do, and I don't think they do either. And immediately, the man's perspective of the father changed. And where he had harbored judgment and resentment and frustration, he was suddenly filled with empathy. The call for us as followers of Jesus is to have that mindset before we put our foot in our mouth. Before we judge someone and call them out, Jesus is calling us to to recognize that every person we interact with is fighting a battle that we know nothing about. And rather, assuming the worst in them, assume the best. Recognize that we are all broken and sinful and righteous and unrighteous before the cross. That is what Jesus calls us to. That is how we bring shalom. 
So where is God calling you to bring shalom into the world today? Where is he asking that you might step forward and bring peace into a world that is desperately longing for it? Is shalom needed in your marriage where you and your spouse have grown so distant from one another that you don't even know how to interact with each other anymore? Is he calling you to bring shalom to to your teenage child who's just honestly being a pain, who's so frustrating to interact with? Is he calling you to bring shalom to your places of work, places of school, to an ex spouse or ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, that the the trauma from that relationship you just hang on to and can't quite let go. Where is God calling you to bring shalom? But it's broader than just our interpersonal relationships. He's also calling us to bring shalom into the world. Did you know that there are 65 million refugees on our planet today who've been displaced by war, violence, famine, and political unrest? Might God be calling you to bring shalom to their situations, to engage with the refugee crisis in our world? We just saw this past week 49 Muslims shot and killed in their place of worship. I don't know if you know this, but there was also a study released this week in America of how 60% of evangelicals look at the Muslim community with anti-Islamic sentiments and distrust. That's us. Do we look at people of the faith of Islam, people who are different than us, people who look differently than us, and do we judge them, mistrust them, believe the worst about them, God is calling us to bring shalom to the broken places of this world, to bring his peace and his reconciliation, his goodness to the places that are broken and in desperate need of it. When people look at our church, Waterstone, do they see us as people of peace? Do they see in us the shalom of God? Because there's a really important part of this passage we haven't quite touched on yet, and that's that the peacemakers will be called children of God. What does it mean that peacemakers are the children of God? Why does Jesus link those ideas, link the idea of loving our enemies and bringing peace is attached to this idea that we're the children of God? When I think of that, I think of my siblings, who uh, I'm the oldest of four kids, two boys and a girl, um, Drew, Hannah, and Matt are, are their names. And there's an interesting thing about us that, that the way siblings are, we have a lot of differences. So there are a lot of ways that we are dissimilar. We all have different careers. I'm a pastor. My brother's a, a project engineer in Dallas for a major construction company. My sister's a teacher for special needs kids. My brother is a, a mental health counselor. We, we all have these different walks of life, different views, different beliefs, different um, ways of interacting with the world. And yet... There's one thing that we all share in common. It's that when we see something off in the world, when we see an injustice or something that looks like it's not fair, we get fired up about it. And to this day, when we get together as as, um, family, 
it's interesting how so many of our conversations will often come to a place, we'll just be joking, goofy and off, getting along, and then all of a sudden some topic or issue comes up and all of a sudden those tempers go, we are engaged, we are fiery, and we are fighting, and we want to see this thing fixed, and we have all sorts of different ideas and ways of doing it. Because when we see something wrong in the world, we think it needs to be fixed. My mom was like that. She was a person that when she saw something that, that was off in the world, she had to speak up and say something. And it often got her into a lot of trouble. So I remember there was one time I was a, a basketball player in high school, and we were uh, on our way from Dallas way out into West Texas. And it was one of those small desert towns, not a lot of people and not a lot to do. But it, it was kind of that scene from the movie, right, where it's the hometown refs and all of the calls are going for the hometown team and the visiting team getting no calls. And as this game is going on, the tension builds and builds and builds. We're getting more frustrated because the foul count is high against us and they have no foul count and, and it's a physical game and everyone's frustrated, we're yelling. And in the middle of that, in the fourth quarter, I go in for a layup and I take an elbow to the face, nose gets bent, blood starts gushing and everyone kind of stops because they say, oh my gosh, that's a foul, play's gonna stop, but there's no whistle, no foul call. And everyone's kind of confused and like, okay, I guess we keep playing. And in the midst of that confusion, you just begin to hear my mom's voice. And oh my goodness, she is letting this ref have it. She's up on the stands and she's chewing him out, dressing him down, I mean, tearing him apart. And you need to recognize, I, I've been a referee, so I understand how hard that job is, but these guys deserved it. It was a terrible game. And my mom is letting them have it to the point where they throw her out of the game. And my mom... Oh my gosh, my mom, she, she, of course she can't just like walk around quietly. She has to walk through the middle of the court as I'm like trying to stop my nose from bleeding with the trainer. And she says, I'd rather go sit in my minivan than watch this trash. <laughs> and I might be editing that a little bit for uh, the sake of church. Um, there might've been some more choice words in there, but I'm sitting there like, yeah, go mom, as my nose is gushing blood and we lose the game and it was a mess. But but my mom was like that. She, she, if she saw something wrong in the world, she had to speak up and say something. She couldn't keep quiet. And her kids are like that. Her kids are like that because they're Anne's kids. And something about who my mom was was passed to us. And we do that and people say, oh my gosh, that sounds just like Anne. That looks just like your mom. God is a peacemaker. He brings shalom, and his children bring shalom. Why? Because children resemble their parents. Does the world look at us, and do they see children of God who bring his shalom into the world? Do they see people who love their enemies, who stand up for the injustices in the world? Do they see people who say, that's not right and I have to say something because my God is a peacemaker and he would not allow this to stand? Is that what people see when they look at us? Because that is what this beatitude calls us to, to be peacemakers, shalom bringers, because we are children of God and our God is a peacemaker. And so we bring shalom. But honestly, everything I've talked about, everything I've mentioned, everything we've walked through, none of that matters. Bringing shalom, praying for our enemies, loving our enemies, greeting them, engaging with them, trying to see the best in them, none of that matters. We will never be able to bring shalom to the world if we have not experienced the peace of God for ourselves. Because you cannot bring to the world what you do not possess yourself. 
You cannot give to the world the peace of God if you do not possess the peace of God. And there is only one true peacemaker. His name is the Prince of Peace, Jesus. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was trying to pick a story that would exemplify and and show how Jesus was a peacemaker, how he brought shalom to the people he interacted with. And the thing was, is I couldn't just pick one because literally every moment of Jesus's life, every interaction and every action he took was about bringing shalom. His birth was heralded as the coming of the Prince of Peace, peace on earth. And his life, every interaction, every person whose sins he forgave, every person he healed, every person he raised from the dead, every time he spoke against the religious elite, every time he confronted the systems of injustice of his day was about bringing peace. And his death itself was about bringing peace and shalom to the world and to you and to me. Colossians says that for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making shalom through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, the gospel of peace. See, Jesus came to bring peace to the world for us to experience his peace. And there's so many people in my life who I know who are, who are longing for the peace of God and yet can't obtain it, can't grasp it. There are people who, who, who have never given their lives to Jesus, who have never surrendered to him as king. They're longing for peace, but they can't receive the peace of God because they think God is fighting against them. And so there's no peace in their life. And I just want to tell them that, that you don't have peace because God is fighting against you. You don't have peace because you are fighting against God. He has never stopped fighting for you. And if that is you today, if you do not have the peace of God, if you have never given your life to him, to surrender to him, in a moment, we're gonna have a time of prayer. And we don't do this often at Waterstone, but we're gonna have elders and, and, and staff available, Stephen ministers for you to pray. And if you have never experienced the peace of God before, I would encourage you to pray with them. But for some of the rest of us, we've, we've given our lives to God. We've surrendered to him. And the Holy Spirit is prompting us today to to bring peace into the world. Because Jesus did not just come to bring peace to you, but through you. And so where is he calling you to step in to being a shalom bringer? Where is he calling you to be a peacemaker? The children of God, those who follow Jesus, bring peace to the world. And so if you feel the prompting from the Spirit today, I would encourage you to come forward as well. Have someone pray for you for a particular person or situation that you want to bring peace in, but you don't know how, and you need the courage and the strength of the Spirit to empower you to bring God's peace. And finally, 
I think there are others of us in this room who, who we just honestly, we're tired. We're just longing for God's peace within us. Our nights are, are full of sleeplessness and our days are full of anxiety. We just want God's peace to show up and to understand a little bit more of what it means to have his shalom deeper in our lives. And I'd ask you to come forward and, and have someone pray that over you as well. Because in Philippians it says, it says that when we bring our prayers and our petitions before God, when we ask him to, to interact with us on the things that are breaking us, that we don't have to be anxious about anything because the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, can be ours in Christ Jesus. And I, to be honest, I don't even understand that. It is beyond understanding. It is a mystery, but it is something that Jesus freely offers. And, and we may not have it fully now. We're still waiting. We're still hoping for one day when he returns and shalom will reign as it was always meant to be. But I would encourage you now in this time, if you are longing for peace, if you've never experienced God's peace or he is calling you to bring peace to the world, in this time of worship, to, to just pray together corporately for that, that we would ask God to show us his peace. Because the peace that surpasses all understanding, that's what I want and what I need. That's the peace that we pray for. That's the peace that God has called us to bring to the world. So let's pray as we worship.